Well, you want to know where we're going to be today? What text of Scripture we're going to be in today? And next week, I promise you, we're going to focus on Palm Sunday, and then we're going to focus on Easter the following Sunday. But we are in this series entitled, Dear Paul, and I invite you to go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're studying through the sixth chapter. This is uh, the 16th message in these six chapters so far. So we will be for a long time this year in 1 Corinthians, but I think you're seeing the significance of uh, the things that are said here in this book and about how it applies especially to our 21st century society. Let's bow our heads together as we begin this morning. Father, I'm so thankful for the verses that Elijah quoted at the beginning of this service and then the songs today about your blood. There's nobody listening to this service, watching this service online, or in this service that hasn't failed, that hasn't faltered, that hasn't sinned, that hasn't come short, including this preacher standing in this pulpit. But I thank you, Lord, for your blood, your blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Thank you that as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. Father, it doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter if we violated what you've said in your word. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. And we're grateful for that forgiveness. We're grateful for the pardon that you make available. Lord, we all fail. We all have to come to you and ask forgiveness. We all falter. There are no perfect people other than yourself. There, is, there are no perfect people. And Lord, when we falter, we acknowledge our failings, our sins, and we ask your forgiveness and you forgive us. And we're restored to fellowship and we move forward. Lord, if there's somebody who's joining us today in this service that doesn't know your son Jesus as his or her Savior, Lord, what they need more than anything else is to be made right with you through your son, Jesus Christ. May they recognize that Today, they could believe in Jesus Christ and become a child of the living God and become a possessor of the gift of eternal life. Lord, I pray, oh God, help us to see today that as difficult as some of these passages are, and as much as we may have failed in some of these areas, that you are a God who forgives. You are a God who reconciles. You are a God who reclaims. Speak to us now in these coming minutes. From this passage, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of the younger people won't recognize this name, but most of you that are fans of the uh, NBA will recognize the name David Robinson. They called him St. David. He was sometimes called the Admiral because he'd served in the Navy. He was the most valuable player, the most valuable center for the San Antonio Spurs. And you can go back. I went back this past week and I looked up some of his records and some of the things that he accomplished, including winning the championship. Uh, he was a spectacular player during his day. It's interesting that one of the magazines, ESPN, in one of the magazine shows that uh, wrote an article about him, interviewed him about some of the things that were unique to him uh, as he was playing basketball in his professional career. And during one of those articles, he was asked about the way he sometimes seemed to treat women who approached him and treated them in a rather rude fashion. 
um, sort of brush them aside kind of a fashion. And so in this article, this ESPN, ESPN article, uh, they're asking him about why he treated women that way when they would approach him. And this is what he said to the reporter, and it's reported in the article, if you wanted to go back and look it up. It says, I made a rule when I got married. I decided that if anyone's feelings are going to be hurt, they're not going to be my wife's. If I think a woman is acting inappropriately, I say so. It may sound harsh, but that's the way it is. My wife is not going to be the one to suffer. I like that spirit. I like that attitude. I like that, that sense of conviction that I have a relationship with my wife and she has a relationship with me and I will not violate that relationship. I think all of us understand the significance of that and yet all of us know of families and couples that have violated that, uh, that, uh, that covenant that they made with their husband or wife and the result is the broken marriage and the broken family and the brokenness of their hearts because it was never what they dreamed of and never what they thought of. Well, I want you to understand that when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's dealing with a church that is inundated. They are inundated with sexual immorality. They have a lot of other problems too, as we've been seeing. But he spends a lot of time here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 dealing with the subject of immorality because it's everywhere. And I might mention, as you're going to see here in a few moments, it wasn't just the unbelievers in the unbelieving world that was involved in this. He's writing this to believers because believers were doing some of these things. And he's writing to say, I, I can't believe that you're doing these things. You should know better than to do these things. And so in the process, what he's doing in this passage, it's like putting on the brakes, if you will. Slow down. Stop. Think about what's happening here. Think about what you're doing. When I was newly married, Mary and I had our first child, Rebecca. She was just a young baby. And she was at her friend's house. I'd left my car there with her. My friend Keith had picked me up, and we, we were headed to uh, a church service. We were going to be in a church service that evening together, something we wanted to do, a service we wanted to attend. And you have to understand, when you're out where we were growing up, I lived, grew up in Atlanta, but we moved out to Stockbridge, and Stockbridge was, was country. It's like going out to Salt Rock. It's like going out to, to Hamlin. It's out in the country, about 20 miles outside the city of Atlanta. And so Keith came by and picked me up at the house where I had left Mary with the car, and we headed off to this place that we were going for the church service, which was about 25 or 30 miles uh, from where we were over in Riverdale, Georgia. The service ended. By that time, it was dark outside. You couldn't see anything. It's nice when you're in the city. Riverdale, Riverdale's a relatively large city, larger than Huntington, larger than this tri-state area put together. So it's a relatively large city. And, you know, there's a lot of lights, a lot of street lights, a lot of house lights everywhere. But when you get to a certain spot, you move past, you know, the the city atmosphere, and you move more out into the rural atmosphere and out into the country atmosphere. There aren't any street lights, uh, not many house lights. And with the house lights that exist, no, no houses sit up on the road. This, these aren't neighborhoods. These are multiple acre pieces of property with houses that sit back well off the road. Most of them are in the middle of a bunch of trees. So if you see lights, you barely see the lights. They're off in the distance. 
And we're coming along, driving along, back from this place. We've turned on to Fairview Road. I think the speed limit at the time on Fairview Road was about 50 miles an hour. And Keith was doing at least 50. I was the passenger. He was the driver. Uh, no seat belts. Um, you understand, no seat belts. We all survived, but there were no seat belts. If they were, we weren't using them. They weren't required. I don't ever get in a car and drive today without putting on my seat belt. But I didn't in those days. No seat belt. Driving down this dark road. We crest a little hill. It's in a turn. And when we come through the turn, his headlights hit a car, showed a car that had pulled out from a side road that was sitting directly in front of us, perpendicular uh, to us. And uh, we couldn't see it until that exact moment. We were just uh, a matter of uh, yards away from it. There was no way to miss it. Uh, we ended up hitting the back uh, passenger door on the driver's side and the back panel of the car. Of course, when Keith saw it, he pushed for the brakes and he turned the car as best he could. That threw us over onto the other side of the road, which meant we ran into a telephone pole on my side of the car, on this side of the car. Probably if we'd hit it dead on, neither one of us might have been here, but hit the, the telephone pole uh, on the right-hand side of the car. That threw the back end of the car down into this gully, and we slid down into this gully that's filled with bushes and filled with all kinds of tall grass and all the other things that you can imagine that grow where you don't normally cut the, cut the grass. And finally, we came to a stop. First thing I said to Keith, I was in the floorboard. You have no seat belt. I had already slid into the floorboard. I was down under the dashboard. First thing I said to Keith, I said, well, God's not through with us yet. <laughs> Very first thing I said, you can ask him to this day. And then we heard a man screaming and we realized it was the man on the road. We quickly, as quick as we could, forced our way out of the car, climbed back up the hill. The man was screaming because he thought we had died in the car accident. But I can remember when we saw that car. I know Keith inevitably hit his brakes. But you know what I did at that moment? I didn't have a brake pad on my side of the car, but I was doing everything I could to stop that car if I possibly could. I was pushing as hard as I could. Stop! Stop! That's what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's gotten in the car with them, and they're riding along, and they're headed toward this terrible crash. As a matter of fact, many of them have already crashed. And he's putting on the brakes. He's saying, slow down. Stop. Danger ahead. There's a terrible crash ahead of you. Stop. He wants them to stop and think about their actions. And I guess in this two-part message that I've given about sexual morality, I hope that you feel the sense of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to put on the brakes. 21st century modern American society, even amongst Christians, has become so sexually immoral that to talk about morality makes you look like you're old and out of date. But we are no more old and out of date than the Scripture is old and out of date, and it is never old or out of date. It is always the truth. And beginning in verse 12 down through verse 20, the Apostle Paul speaks to some things that are the common thoughts even to this day. 
In the last message, we talked about two points related to the realm of morality. In the realm of morality, ignorance is not always bliss. We saw that seven times in chapters 5 and 6, he uses a little phrase that goes like this. Do you not know? Do you not know? Have you ever said that to your kids? Don't you remember? Don't you know what I told you? He uses it seven times in those two chapters. While ignorance may be bliss about some things when it comes to the matter of what the Bible has to teach us about sexual morality, ignorance is not bliss. The second thing we learned in the last message was that in the realm of morality, excuses will not excuse you. Excuses will not excuse you. Four times through here, he uses excuses these kinds of excuses that the Corinthians were using to excuse their behavior. Two of them are identical. Verse 12, all things are lawful to me. Verse 13, foods for the stomach. And then down in verse 18, every sin that a man does is outside the body. These were things that the Corinthians were using as their excuses, but excuses will not excuse you. You will stand before God and you will give an account for your life one day. Not as to whether you get into heaven or not, if you know Christ is your Savior, but as to whether you have lived your life as God would have had you to live your life. Now we come to a third thing that 1 Corinthians 6 addresses that's true for our day. And that is that in the realm of morality, casual sex does not exist. At least for the believer in Jesus... In the realm of morality, casual sex does not exist. When I talk about casual sex, generally, that's a term that refers to consensual sex that's outside of a romantic relationship or outside of a marriage. It comes with no strings attached. There's no expectations. And it's consequently referred to as casual sex. No commitments, no exclusivity. It's just casual sex. But I want to take that definition, and I want to go a little bit beyond that definition. Because I'm using that phrase, casual sex, in the additional way of helping you to understand the indifference and indifference with which some Christians treat sexuality, as if their conduct doesn't matter and is without moral consequences. It's just casual is no commitment, no responsibility, no strings attached, no emotions involved. But even beyond that, just the casual way in which we treat this matter of morality. The Pew Research, uh, Pew Research did some, a study in 2019, and they found that half of Christians say casual sex is sometimes or always acceptable. 62% of Catholics say that. 56% of Protestants in the historically black tradition, and 54% of mainline Protestants, and 36% of evangelical Protestants. The study goes on and says that a majority of Christians say that sex between unmarried adults in a committed relationship is sometimes or always acceptable. In other words, you, you see the casual nature with which we take this whole matter of morality. We, we take this matter of sexual immorality. I don't know if you've ever heard of the five principles of the new morality. 
If you haven't, you can find them online and you can read them all. But I want to read you one of the principles of the new morality. What's afoot today in the world in which we live? This is the one paragraph I want you to hear. One of the five principles of the new morality says that sexual acts don't have intrinsic meanings or purposes. They don't relate to a deeper natural order which we must honor and not violate. Their meaning is merely constructed by society and the persons engaging in them. And then it finishes out by saying, meaningless sex is a genuine possibility. Well, that may be how the new world order wants us to understand sexuality, but that is not how God defines sexuality. And there is no such thing as casual sex. I want you to look with me for a moment, beginning in verse 15, and listen to what he says as we pick up his argument here from where we left off. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies, your bodies, are members of Christ. Let me stop here for a moment. The moment you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, you became a part of Jesus. And Jesus, through the presence of the Spirit of God, took up residence in your body, right? He goes on, shall I then, because we're members of Christ, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? And then he uses one of the strongest adversatives you could possibly use. Depending on what translation you're reading from, it may emphasize it. In mine, it says, certainly not. It would be like me holding up my hand and putting it in your face and saying, never, never. Why? Because casual sex for the believer in Jesus does not exist. Whether you're talking about it having no commitment and no responsibility, no ties, uh, it's, it's just a matter of, uh, of, of a relationship that you're going to walk away from and there's no meaning to it at all. Or you mean just the attitude that we take towards sexuality, the morality of the Scripture. The, the reality is that it matters because you are a part of Christ and Christ is a part of you. And what are you doing? You're taking his body and you're joining it to a harlot. And he says, is that acceptable? Absolutely not. That is not acceptable. He goes on in verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Do you get it? There is no such thing as casual sex. It does not exist for the believer in Jesus. You can't take it as a careless kind of a way of approaching life because the reality is you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to you and you bring him into everything you do. Certainly not. I don't want Christ involved in this. Never. I don't want Christ involved in this. Therefore, in verse 18, he says what? Flee sexual immorality. He can't say it any stronger than that. When you find yourself in a situation where you are tempted by the immorality that is around you, you don't stay there and fight it. You turn from it and you run away 
as fast as you can. And then he says something interesting. He says, every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Now, part of that is a phrase that the Corinthians were using to excuse themselves But Paul is acknowledging that there is a difference in sins. We have this general idea that all sins are equal. All sins are not equal. They all equally offend a holy God, but all sins are not equal before God. Please understand that. Uh, When you look in the Old Testament law, is it uh, the person who takes the life of another punished in the same way as the one who steals because he's hungry? Obviously not. When you take our own law, are, are all people uh, punished in the exact same fashion by the, because of the crimes that they've committed? Absolutely not. There are different levels of offenses before the Almighty God. All of them are offenses against the Holy God. All of them are sins against God. But the consequences are not always the same. And he says the consequence of this sexual immorality What a man does is outside the body, but wait a minute, he who sins and commits this sexual immorality sins against his own body. There's something unique and different about it. Please understand, we could talk a lot about what this means, that he sins against his own body, a lot of things we could talk about, what he means by that. At least at the core of what he means is that we've sinned against the body's rightful ownership. And he's distinguishing between sins that are outside the body and the sin against the body. There's something different about this kind of immorality. It may be physical or it may be emotional or it may be financial or it may be psychological or it may just be the spiritual scars that are inevitably the result of sexual sin. But it's not casual. It's not something we look at indifferently. Well, I just go to the movie to watch. I don't really pay attention to the nude scenes. No big deal. It's just me and another woman. It didn't really matter, does it? It's just two people that think we're going to be married and love each other. It doesn't really matter, does it? There is no such thing as casual sex to a person who knows the Lord Jesus because you are a part of Christ and Christ is a part of your life and you bring him into everything in which you are involved. You bring him into everything because he's with you. Next time you're tempted, I want you to remember that Christ's presence is with you in every immoral act you commit. So you sit down in front of the computer screen and you pull up some website or you do it on your phone. Young people pick up their phone and they begin scanning through the web pages of the various places they can go or just start searching for pictures on their phone. And they start looking at the things that they can see. Remember that the Lord is there. The Lord is with you. The Lord is watching. You are bringing the Lord into all of those kinds of circumstances. This is no casual matter. This is no matter of indifference. For that matter, no sin is casual to a Christian. It's no big deal, they, th- they say. Not to the believer in Jesus, because in every circumstance, you're believing, bringing Jesus into those situations. Does he approve? Would he approve if he were here? If he were here to speak audibly to our ears, would he say, I bless what you're doing? 
If he can't say that, if, you can't, if the Lord can't say that to you, you know the Lord wouldn't say that to you, then you shouldn't be there either. Excuses will not excuse you. Ignorance is not always bliss. Casual sex does not exist. For the believer in Jesus, put it out of your mind that it doesn't matter what I do outside my body. It doesn't matter. It's just what's inside that matters. Put it away from you, that kind of thinking. Because it affects every aspect of you and more than anything else, it is a sin against the God you claim to follow. Sex, casual sex does not exist, number four, in the realm of morality. And here is the key argument of the entire passage. You want to say, what is 1 Corinthians 6 trying to argue about sexual morality? Here it is. This is the key argument. You don't belong to you. That's what he says, verses 19 and 20. Notice it. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Think about the price. Think about the price that Jesus paid for, for us. He went to the cross of Calvary. He was unjustly tried those six times. He was beaten till he was almost beyond recognition, nailed to that tree outside the city of Jerusalem and hung, suspended between heaven and earth. And then the penalty of our sins was placed on Jesus, and Jesus dipped himself into the separation that we rightly deserve from God. And he paid a penalty that we rightfully should be paying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Until he could finally say, it is finished, paid in full. Paid in full, yeah. For every person who comes to Jesus Christ and trusts in Jesus, that payment is, is accounted. It's, it's counted to your account. It is credited to your account. And your sin debt is gone, gone. Yes, my sins are gone. He paid for you. He went into the slave market. He paid the price for your eternal soul to set you free. Yeah, he paid for you. That means you don't own yourself. He owns you. You don't belong to you. You belong to him. He is the one who is your master. He is the one who is your Lord. He is the one who is your God. And the decisive argument against immorality in this passage is to whom does your body belong? If it belongs to God, then we use it the way God says to use it. It's an authority issue. And I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but in the 21st century society, at least, there is an authority issue. <laughs> Have you noticed that? There's an authority issue. Nobody will be my authority. I will be an authority unto myself. Not if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You were paid for by Jesus, and he sets you free, and now you belong to him. And that's the ultimate question. To whom does your body belong? And if it belongs to God, then you have no right to do with it whatever you wish to do with it. You and I have no right to do with our bodies anything that Christ does not want done with them. Now, all of us have violated this in different ways. 
But in the realm of sexuality, I'm reminding you that your body belongs to God. Therefore, you're to glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Imagine for a moment something that I want to share with you. When I was a, was a young kid, we, my grandmother lived in Lakewood, Georgia. And about, uh, oh, about a half a mile, maybe three-quarters of a mile from her house, periodically they would have a race. And part of the racing that was done down there at the, at the dirt track was a demolition derby. And on occasion, my dad would take me down to the demolition derby. I never liked it. I could never understand why you want to beat up cars like that. I can't understand why anybody wants to do that. Run forward, run backwards, run sideways, and hit somebody as much as you can. But I guess it's a little like the bumper cars at the amusement parks. But just imagine for a moment that I came by your house one day and I asked to borrow your car for the day. Now, most of you in this room don't know me well enough to let me have your keys, but there are a few of you that probably wouldn't question me, and you'd say, here, Pastor, here are the keys to my Lexus. <laughs> you wouldn't ask me any questions because we have a relationship together that's strong enough that you would just give me the keys and say, okay, I, if the pastor says he needs it, then I, I believe the pastor needs it, and I'll trust him with it. But suppose that my intention, unbeknownst to you, was to take your car down to the demolition derby that afternoon and enter it as one of the contestants. So when the time comes, I drive out onto the field, and for the next 30 minutes or 45 minutes or the next hour or more, I'm ramming other cars and ramming, being rammed by other cars until only one car remains somewhat, that's the key word, somewhat operational. And the race is now over. They've declared the winner. Let me ask you a question. How would you feel about loaning me your car once you learned how I used it? Why should, I, why should it matter to you how I used your car? You didn't ask me what I intended to do with it. And besides, you gave me the right to use your car for the period of time I requested. I mean, surely that must be the way God feels when we take our bodies that belong to him and use them in ways that harm others, defiles us, and hurts him. We enter our lives into this demolition derby, and we say, God, it's my body. I can do with it what I want. And God says, no, 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 it's not your body. That body belongs to me. Make no mistake about it, he has already told us how we're to use our bodies to bring him glory. And that's the quintessential argument of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. These bodies belong to God. And so it matters how we treat them. It matters what we do with them. It matters whether we get them involved in immorality or not. Because they belong to God. In the realm of morality, ignorance is not always bliss, and excuses will not excuse you, and casual sex does not exist, and you don't belong to God. Have you figured out yet that Paul is pretty relevant? Right? Paul is pretty relevant. I mean, he's speaking right to where we are today. He's speaking to the first century, but he's speaking to right, right to where we are today. But number five, and finally... In the realm of morality, Scripture has the final say. Scripture has the final say. Did you know that the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders 
that was first published in 1968 listed homosexuality as a mental disorder? In 1973, the American Psychiatric Association asked all of its members attending its convention to vote, to vote, it's really scientific, to vote on whether they believed homosexuality to be a mental disorder. 5,854 psychiatrists voted to remove homosexuality from the manual and 3,810 to retain it. But the APA, the American Psychiatric Association, then compromised removing homosexuality from the manual, but not, not removing it, but replacing it, in effect, with this phrase, sexual orientation disturbance. In 1987, they decided to let homosexuality, sexual orientation disturbance, all of that kind of terminology to completely fall out of the manual. So, So let me ask you a question. Let me see if I can help you to get what I'm getting at here. If the psychological society votes and says, Christians sleeping together outside of marriage, before marriage, or any other kind of sexual immorality is really not immorality at all. It's all really okay, and it's really good for people to do so. Does that give you a license to go and do so? I mean, it's really scientific. Let's take a vote. How many of you are against it, as we used to say in Georgia? How many of you are for it, and how many of you are against it? That's a real scientific approach to a matter like this, right? No. Whether it's psychology or it's sociology or it's biology or it's physiology or any of the other ologies, what God says is wrong is wrong no matter what they have to say. Period. It's sin. You can define it out of your manuals all you want. You can vote it out of your manuals all that you want. But the reality is, and by the way, if you read the popular magazines, which I don't, I'm only telling you what I'm told are in these magazines, there's a lot of advice counselors that are saying, it's okay, this is good for you. No, it isn't. And it isn't because God says so. Scripture has the final say. You say, where does that come from in this passage? You didn't see it? <laughs> I'm, being, I'm being facetious. You, you didn't see it? It's, it's in verse 16. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two shall become one flesh. Let me ask you a question. Where does that quote come from? It comes from the Scripture. It comes from the book of Genesis All the people that are trying to downplay the first 11 chapters of Genesis better stop and think about what you're saying. Adopting the Darwinian approach to evolution, a godless approach to evolution that does away with God, does away with the morality that you say you believe. We don't don't look at the the geological evidence and then interpret the Bible. We look at the the Bible and interpret the geological evidence. And for those that are sitting here that are are scientific in your thinking, and you say it has to be that we all evolved from nothing. It's just a big bang and billions of years have passed, and this is what we are and how we live. Hey, listen to me for a moment. 
there are a lot of scientists, not the majority, but there are a lot of science who, scientists who look at the evidence and come to the conclusion that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are actual and true. And explaining it away doesn't solve your problem. It only creates other problems. For now, how am I going to reinterpret what has been understood for the last 2,000 years? Did you understand that the definition in the New Testament, are you with me? The definition of the biological sexes is affirmed in the New Testament using the Genesis account in the Gospel of Mark. The permanence of merits in the New Testament is demonstrated using the Genesis account. The uniqueness of marriage between one man and one woman is settled in the New Testament using the Genesis account. The historicity of the first marriage is shown to be fact by using the Genesis account in the New Testament. The authenticity of Noah's flood is affirmed by using the Genesis account in the New Testament. The origin and depravity of mankind is learned by using the Genesis account. The reason for creation's travails is explained by using the Genesis account. The coming of Christ a second time is affirmed by using the Genesis account in 2 Peter 3. And the argument against sexual immorality comes from using the Genesis account. You get what I'm saying? I'm saying it's wrong because God says it's wrong. You don't need anybody else to psychoanalyze you as to figure out whether, well, it's just sort of who I am. And, it's, you know, it might not be so bad for me. And it's something that I could just overlook. And maybe everybody else will overlook with me. In the realm of morality, Scripture has the final say. And please understand, kids in our generation, in my generation, had to seek out things that had sexual overtones to them, and usually they were pretty difficult to find, but this generation doesn't have to look for it because it comes boldly looking for them. And what they have to do is what the Apostle Paul says to do in verse 18. They have to flee sexual immorality. they got to run from it. You understand that on other occasions, Paul says, stand against the wiles of the devil. Or he says, resist, James says, resist the devil. But you realize when it comes to sexual immorality, he doesn't say stand. He doesn't say resist. He says, get out of there. Run as fast as you can and as far as you have to go. Isn't that what Joseph did in the Old Testament? Working in Potiphar's house. I, just studying for this message came across a little phrase. You don't need to turn back here, but just, just a little phrase from Genesis 39 that I, I just I saw but I never saw. He's working in Potiphar's house. Potiphar's wife is making a play for him. It's okay. He's not going to be here for a long time. We can sleep together. Nobody will know anything about it. And Joseph wasn't having anything to do with it. He was more committed to his God than he was his own sexual fulfillment. And what happens? She reaches out to grab him. I'm not going to let you go. And he runs right out of that coat that he's wearing. And listen to what it says. 
Chapter 39, verse 10. So it was as she spoke to Joseph day by day. This is a continuing thing that she's doing. That he did not heed her to lie with her. That's to sleep with her. Now listen, or, here's the phrase I'd always overlooked, to be with her. Do you know what he was doing before she grabbed his coat and wouldn't let him go? Do you know what he was doing? As soon as she came in the room, he was getting out of the room as fast as he could. I don't want to be in the same room with this woman. Not because I don't like this woman, because I'm not going to sin against my God with this woman. I'm not even going to be with her in the same room together. What do you do? You do what Joseph did. You flee Sexual immorality. Now I want to give you four thoughts as I close. Give you four points of application. Number one, sexual purity is essential to our walk with God. I didn't say that if you've been sexually immoral that God has cut you off and you're no longer his child. That's not true. That would never be true. But it has to do with your fellowship with God and your walk with God. And sexual purity is essential to our walk with God. You say it's just a casual matter. It's not a big deal. It's not that important. It's just something we do. Uh, psychologists say it's normal. Everybody else is doing it. I want to read to you from the message. That's a paraphrase of Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And one little phrase, one little sentence out of the message, this is what he says. When he says grace teaches us to deny ungodliness, that's how it's read in my Bible. Grace teaches us to deny ungodliness. In the message, it's paraphrased this way. We're being shown how to turn our backs on a godless, indulgent life and how to take on a God-filled, God-honoring life. And all of that comes by what? The grace of God. Number two. Sexual purity is essential to our walk with two. Number two, that sexual purity is a matter of the mind before the body. The battle's in the mind, friends. It starts through your eye gates. It starts through what you listen to, what you let yourself think about, what you're reading and taking into your heart, what you're feeding yourself. It begins in the mind. You start thinking about it. Your mind starts drifting towards something. you got to have that discipline. And it's not easy, I understand, especially when it's so prevalent everywhere around us to keep our minds disciplined. Sexual purity is a matter of the mind before the body. You keep your mind right with God, your body will stay right with God. Number three, you're not going to like this one, but it's Scripture. Sexual purity is about radical obedience. It's about radical obedience. Now listen to me. Remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, if your right eye causes you to stumble, do what with it? Gouge it out and throw it away. He went on to say, if your right hand causes you to stumble, what do you do with it? You cut it off and you throw it away. And you get down into Matthew 18, he even includes not just the eyes and the hands, he includes the feet. If your feet are taking you somewhere, you ought not to go cut them off and throw them away. You say, surely Jesus didn't mean that. It is hyperbole. It is exaggeration for the sake of helping you understand the radical aspect of what he's saying. 
sexual purity is about radical obedience. I'm not suggesting you go cut off your hand or gouge out your eyes or cut off your feet, but I am suggesting that if you can't control it, then you do away with those apps that are on your phone and those apps that are on your TV, your smart TV. If you can't control it, you do away with the things that bring you into the place where the temptation is present, radical obedience. Now, here's what I tell people who are involved in an adulterous relationship. They, they get involved in an adulterous relationship. You can never see that person, talk to that person, come near that person ever again for the rest of your life. You say, well, I work in the building with them. You gotta, either he or she, one of the two of you, has got to leave. One of the two of you has got to leave. So I don't like that advice. Yeah. You remember the, the illustration that Solomon uses in Proverbs? Can you take fire into your bosom and not be burned? you got to get as far away from it as you can possibly get, get from it. it. Well, she's in my neighborhood. He's in my neighborhood. Then you got to move neighborhoods i got to find a new place to live. i got to find a new job. I've got to get as far away from it as is possible. I thought it was interesting. I read, was reading about a Christian businessman who, who traveled frequently, but his relationship with God was suffering because of a reoccurring issue. He would get to his motel room, and he would be tempted by the movies that you could buy on the television, the pornographic movies that you could buy on the television. He had guilt, and he had regret and it left him feeling shamed in the presence of God. He knew this wasn't what God wanted for him. And so one day he made a decision. He decided that when he went to a hotel, he would ask them to remove the TV from his room. The desk clerk said, sir, you can just turn it off. You don't have to turn it on. He said, no, I want the TV removed from my room altogether. And he said, these are his words, once the TV was gone, I found myself spending the evenings reading scripture and Christian books without any temptation to view pornographic material. Now listen to this phrase. I want to make sure you get this phrase. Write, write this phrase down. In his moment of strength, he made the decision that kept him from temptation in his moments of weakness. Hear it? In his moment of strength, he made the decision that kept him from temptation in his moments of weakness. Why? Because this whole matter of sexual purity is about radical obedience. You're going to have to be different than the world around you. That means when your girlfriends get together and y'all are talking stuff that you ought not be talking, hey, that means, men, when you're in the locker room, you're not using locker room language. It takes radical obedience. And number four and finally, sexual purity is, is God's best for your life. You say, if I take your advice, preacher, and I, I start living like you're talking about, living like... Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I cut off all this stuff that's coming to my mind that I'm reading, that I'm looking at, that I'm searching for on the internet, and I cut it all off. You understand, my life's going to fall apart. It's going to be miserable. No, 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 no. 
you're going to find the greatest fellowship you've ever had with God. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 6. Just listen. It is God's will. People ask me all the time, what's God's will? It isn't this complicated. It is God's will. This is what's best for your life. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. That's God's will. That's what's best for you. That's the very best for you. So we come to the final part of this, this, this message. And I have to ask you, is your heart pure? Is your mind pure? Are your thoughts pure? Could the forensic guys with one of the police departments or the FBI go on your computer and find where you've been searching? And would they find things that would embarrass you if everybody knew? Would you be embarrassed if your kids knew what was on your phone? What you were looking at on your phone? Young people, would you be embarrassed if we knew what kind of pictures you were sending to your friends? You say, wow, somebody has to have this talk with our children, with our teens, with our adults, with us. And let's just be honest about it. It is a struggle for everybody in this room, but it's a struggle worth fighting.